We'll hear argument in case 16-12-15, Lamar, Archer, and Coffrin versus Appling. Mr. Garr. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 523A2A of the Bankruptcy Code prohibits the discharge of debts procured by fraudulent statements other than a statement respecting the debtor's financial condition. Everyone agrees that financial condition is a term of art used by Congress and in commercial practice to refer to one's overall financial status. Yet Respondent and the Government asked this Court to interpret Section 523, and in particular Congress's use of respecting, to eliminate the meaning of financial condition of a term of art and essentially to substitute the word finances for it. Can you tell me, Mr. Garr, what is um, a statement respecting financial condition in addition to a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement? What else would qualify? Sure. Well, our view is that a statement respecting financial condition is a statement that purports to present a picture of one's overall financial situation. And there are several things that could qualify as as that. One would, of course, be a classic balance statement or sheet. Another would be uh, an indication of net net wealth or or overall income, uh, a net worth. Another would be uh, a credit score such as those that were common in 1926 when Congress passed the statute. Another would be net cash flow. All of these things uh, look to one's overall financial situation, not to just one side of the ledger, an asset or a liability, and present a picture of overall financial status. And again, respondents' interpretation of respecting essentially eliminates that term uh, as a term of a limitation and as a term of art and substitutes the word finances for it. So a statement about any individual in- input, any individual asset, any individual liability suddenly becomes a statement respecting financial condition. And I think there are three central problems with, with, con- with respondents' interpretation of respecting. The first is, as I mentioned, that, co- that their reading of respecting to mean related to eliminates Congress' decision to use the term of art financial condition. It would be an odd thing for Congress to say, we're going to uh, refer to financial condition, but then essentially eliminate the meaning of that by saying respecting financial condition. And there's no reason why the Court has to interpret respecting to mean related to. It can mean related to, but it can also mean about. And here in context, Reading respecting financial condition to mean a statement about financial condition makes perfect sense. To say something is about mean it refers to the subject of the object. Here the object is the statement. Here the subject is financial condition, one's overall financial status. So the fact that their reading of respecting to mean related to would eliminate financial condition as a term of art and a term of limitation is the first reason why this Court — Could you tell me, Mr. Garr, what do you think the difference is between relating to and about? I think, uh, Your Honor, if, if you go to the dictionary, the dictionary, the definition we provide for about means on the subject of. It refers to the subject. The subject here is financial condition. Relating to is a much broader term of breath, or at least can be used in that way. I mean, this Court famously is Justice Scalia — famously said, uh, everything is related to everything, essentially. I mean, it's a term of great breath. So there's something intuitive about what you just said, but then I started trying to come up with sentences in my head 
where I switched the two words, and I honestly couldn't find one where they meant something different. So I'm, I'm, help, I'm hoping you can help me come up with those examples where, you know, just give me a sentence where if you have about, it means something different than if you have relating to. Okay. Uh, tell me about Ted Williams' batting average. And here we're using about and we're also using batting average, which is a relative, relative term, versus uh, tell me something relating to his batting average. And I think you could see in that sentence that relating to is a much broader term going to capture things like, oh, well, he struck out in the seventh inning, versus, well, you know, he hit 400. It was an amazing season. Or he, he almost hit the ball, uh, Just he was almost just as likely to hit the ball as he was to not hit it. That's a statement about batting average. Nobody would think that if you said, tell me about your GPA, and you said, well, gee, I missed the, the last question on my last test. That, that, that may be a, that's certainly a statement relating to your GPA, that, that missing that question is going to impact, have some relationship to your EPA, but you wouldn't think of that as a statement about your GPA. And that's the way in which Congress was using about uh, respecting here as a preposition to modify I'm financial Mr. condition. Garth, the problem I have with your example is, if I asked you, tell me about your batting average, and you said, um, I hit five out of ten, or I hit six out of ten, you would be answering that question. Or you could say, I hit five out of ten um, when I was in a, uh, in a position to score a run. So the about would be answered in both ways. Well, I think, first of all, you're referring to the subject. How are the respecting would be answered in the both ways? Well, you're, you're referring to the, the subject, the batting average there, and your answer uh, actually provide, looked at both sides of the equation, how many hits he got and how many times at bat he got. So in that sense, that's different than just saying we're talking about an individual asset. And then I think the sort of the ambiguity in your question was, did you mean his batting average in the game or his season? And maybe that would be something you would follow up on. But I think that your expression of that is perfectly consistent with our view. A sort of problem. You produced an irresistible example, which I can't resist. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I suspect that the key of your example is the word, uh, the word something, not the word respecting. And when you say tell me about, what usually that means is all about but let's try it with the word statement, which is in the statute. Make a statement about his battering average. Make a statement respecting his batting average. There, I'm with Justice Kagan. I have a hard time seeing the difference. Well, you're, a statement respecting is still going to refer to about his batting average, the subject of it. Not, I think if you said, tell me a statement about no, his... No, not tell me. Make a make. statement about his batting average. Sure. He make a statement respecting his batting average. Now, use statement, and now, there we are. He hit the ball more than he struck out, versus uh, he was, that's a statement respecting batting average, versus he was robbed of a hit in the seventh inning by a great catch. That's not a statement respecting. I'll, I'll, take, it, I'll take it under consideration. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and what, Mr. Garr, what, what trouble, what, what if the debtor makes a statement about a specific asset or liability, but Anybody but the the reasonable listener would take that to be a statement about or respecting financial situation. So our view, Justice Alito, is this court should follow what Congress said and say that a statement about a single asset or single liability is not a statement respecting financial condition. It's just not. Um, 
if you disagree with that, then I think one fallback position the Court could take would be something like what you said. A reasonable person would view that as a statement about one's overall financial situation. Now, this case couldn't be possibly be viewed in that way because it was clear that this was a statement about only a single asset, and it was a statement in spite of his financial condition. So the Court couldn't possibly say that the statement in this case about an individual tax refund would be viewed as a reasonable person in this context dealing with a businessman as I don't, a statement I don't follow about that. Maybe you can explain. I thought this was a, a law firm that had a client who was in default. And so the law firm said, we're going to stop uh, representing you. And the client said, oh, don't do that. I'm going to get a tax refund, and it will enable me to pay your bill. Why isn't that a statement reflecting, respecting the financial position, the law firm knowing that the um, the client was unable to pay, wasn't paying his bills, and then the client says, I've come up with something that will assure you I will be able to pay this bill. Sure. Uh, and this is, you know, can come up in any number of situations dealing with collateral, whereas it's not uncommon for someone um, to know that another person is in dire financial straits, but nevertheless to accept collateral in exchange for property or services as a means of paying for that. Um, that's not a statement about overall financial condition. It's a statement that I have an asset can be, that can be used to pay a debt. And this case was litigated all the way up on the premise that the statement at issue here was a statement about his tax refund, individual asset. They argued below that, in fact, what the law firm was relying upon was its knowledge of his precarious financial condition. And the bankruptcy court rejected that and, and found that, no, it was relying on his statement about the tax refund. The district court rejected that and found he was relying on, it was relying on its statement about the tax refund. And I don't even think they appealed that finding to the Eleventh Circuit. So I think that that's why this case is truly the case about a statement about a single asset, a, a tax refund, that the debtor in this case lied about. And, and this, this paradigm here, the sort of classic collateral paradigm, we're talking about a single asset, couldn't be further removed from the situation that Congress was addressing. And I know not all members of the Court may want to um, look to that legislative history, but it's sort of the gorilla, um, it's the elephant in the room here. Um, and that's that when Congress was looking at this situation in 1978, what it was doing is looking at a particular abusive practice by some creditors, which were using written financial statements essentially to dupe uh, uh, applicants for credit into making false statements by simply omitting debts or assets on those statements, and then using that as coercion once they went into bankruptcy. And so Congress passed a specific rule that dealt with written financial statements. Mr. Garr, I'm not sure I understand how that helps you even on its own terms, assuming I'd be willing to look at it, of course. Um, But if Congress's concern is that uh, um, creditors are soliciting uh, information that's incomplete about debts or liabilities, that's just half of uh, the balance sheet that you want us to look at. So Congress appears to have been concerned, to the extent we can tell these things, about uh, misstatements only with respect to one half of overall financial condition, right? Well, uh, I don't think that's completely correct, Your Honor, in the Good. sense that How? The, the, the legislative record makes clear that the forms 
the financial statements that creditors were using were statements that referred to both liabilities and assets. So those were financial right, statements no, about financial that, but if conditions. The concern is that the, the misstatements were with respect to omitted liabilities, right? But Congress, the, the, the creditors in that situation were using forms that uh, represented one's overall financial status, referring to a credit score, net worth. But doesn't that show that an omitted liability, one asset or, or lack or one debt, can reflect on the overall financial condition? That can be about and relevant to and reflect on the overall financial condition. It, it certainly can be related to, but the question is what kinds of statements were, was well, Congress, Congress addressing? Well, Congress thought it could be about, didn't it? I don't, I don't think it did. I mean, it, it said it could be related to, but the situation there is you have creditors who are abusing a false financial statement that included liabilities and assets, debtors, debtors who are essentially blameless, and here the situation is the opposite. There's no reason, and Judge Ebell recognized this in the Tenth Circuit's decision in Jolson, there's no reason for a debtor to be misled or mistaken about an individual asset. Um, and conversely, there's no indication here in the But if, if, if you make a major representation about the absence of an overwhelming debt or the presence of an overwhelming asset, why can't that reflect on, be about your overall financial condition? It's, I own a genuine Vermeer. Um, I think, I mean, I, I give two answers to that. One is, my first answer is, if it's a statement about a single asset, it's just not a statement about overall financial Ever. condition. Categorically. Categorically. Right, if I said I, I went, you know, people who win the lot, lottery let's, go broke, too. Yeah. So that, that's my first answer. What, what's your second and answer? And the second answer is the one I gave to Justice Alito, which is that if one, if the Court rejected the first answer, one could say that you'd look to whether a reasonable person in context would view the statement as being about one's overall financial situation. It depends on context, doesn't it? It would. The bank says, Schmidt, you are broke. (coughs) Are you kidding, says Schmidt? I have a genuine Vermeer. Right. I mean, oh, oh, I didn't know that, says the teller. Oh, here's $100,000. You know, what's that if it's not about overall financial? And that would be a hypothetical that I think would call into play this this separate rule if the court wanted to go there. Now, you couldn't say that about the statement in this case. No reasonable person would look in the context here and say that the statement that I have, $100,000. Why isn't it exactly like the genuine Vermeer, right? Um, The law firm's chasing the client, and and the client says, okay, 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 I'm late in paying. I know I'm terribly late in paying, but I have this tax refund coming. I have the genuine Vermeer almost in my possession. Right. Why isn't that why, – why, why isn't everyone in the room understanding exactly what that means, which is, okay, I don't have a lot else, but I've got this? I think, I think it's the difference between financial condition and ability to pay, which are two different concepts, and Congress said financial condition. Well, well that, that, that's a problem for me, too, and maybe you can help me out with that, is the insolvency definitions in, in the tax code, at least for municipalities. Right. Financial condition is defined as the ability to meet your current – um, debts as they come due. That, that's not the way Congress thought of it. If you look at the definition of insolvency, it refers to financial condition first and the difference between assets and liabilities. Congress also differentiated between assets and liabilities and financial conditions and other provisions where it listed those terms separately in 11 U.S.C. 1103C2 and 1106A3. And, and there's two, diff- two additional reasons why I don't think you could read 
respecting in the broad related to way that respondents and the government ask you to here. Um, the second, the first one is that it strips financial condition of meaning. The second one is that Congress used the term related to in nearby provisions of the statute in both 1926 and 1978, showing that when Congress meant relating to the broadest conceivable definition, it said relating to, not respecting. And the third reason is just the consequences of respondents and the government's rule. Their rule would render the baseline rule in Section 523 that debts procured by fraud are not dischargeable, inapplicable to a common fact pattern under Section 523, which is statements made about one's finances to secure credit. Now, the government itself on page 18 of its brief recognizes that that is a common situation, someone making statements about one's finances to to obtain credit. And yet the consequence of respondents and the government's rule is to wipe that out as a basis for discharge. And there's, there's no indication at all that Congress in mind, that Congress had in mind such a dramatic reshifting of the ordinary regime that it has applied for a century in this context, which is a debt procured by fraud, is not dischargeable. And this Court relied upon similar considerations, for example, in Marichek versus Spears, where it refused to uh, interpret an exception to the Driver Privacy Protection Act in such a broad manner that it would really strike at the heart of the overlying objective there. And here we have a textually grounded objective that this Court has recognized repeatedly of not releasing for debtors debts procured by fraud. And I think one would look skeptically to a rule that would wipe out the application of that age-old rule in a commonly recurring context, which is statements made about finances. May may I ask you to clarify something? I I may may not have understood this correctly, but the statement, don't worry, I am above water. Yeah. I think you said that would need to be in writing. It would. And I think that the the fairest way to read that would be a statement about financial condition. And that's quite different than a statement about individual asset. That fact pattern is not coming up in the real world. Justice Ginsburg, no reasonable creditor would rely on a statement that general, but in our view, that is a statement respecting financial condition. How is is that significantly different from, don't worry, I have an anticipated tax refund that will enable me to pay your bill? Right, because that, that's, that goes to ability to pay, not overall financial condition. And again, and it goes to why we ask for collateral and loans commonly. Collateral well, is not me, a, I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I mean, you, it's not uncommon for people to have, be in dire financial straits, but yet go to get loans on the basis of collateral. That's sort of the payday situation that the government refers to. Ability to pay is a different concept than financial condition. Congress would have known that. At the time it enacted financial condition language initially, there were state laws uh, that referred to financial condition or ability to pay, as we mentioned. Which says more about your financial com- uh, condition, Mr. Gar? Um, uh, I'm above water. That's one option. Or I have a bank account with a billion dollars in it. Well, I, I think the I'm above water tells you about your financial condition the I, because it tells you about your overall financial status. The I have a bank account with a billion dollars in it tells you you have a lot of money. doesn't tell you anything about your debts. Really rich people sometimes have really big liabilities, as Bertie Madoff. 
And so that does not give you a sense of overall financial status. Now, again, and I think that calls into play Justice Alito's point, that if you disagreed with that, then maybe that is the kind of statement that one could look at and say that that is so astronomically big, a reasonable person would view that as a statement about overall, concerning about overall financial situation. Uh, that's not the rule we would urge this Court to adopt. We would urge you to follow the text of what Congress said. And, again, it's accepted by everyone that financial condition is a term that refers to overall financial status. That's the easiest way to interpret the statute. It's the way that brings it in line with the problem that Congress sought to address. And, again, I mean, just referring, returning to that problem briefly, there you had a situation of a certain class of creditors that were abusing written financial statements that included assets and liabilities and duping creditor, debtors into making false statements. So you had blameworthy creditors and essentially blameless debtors. In that situation, Congress said you should, we should rebalance the scales and not discharge those debts unless they meet certain additional requirements in B. This Court recognized that in Field versus Mann, which makes it a little bit different than the typical legislative history case. The government strenuously argued that the Court should interpret 523A2A in field in light of that specific problem it was seeking to address. And that problem couldn't be further removed from the situation here where you have a creditor that is entirely blameless and you have a debtor which had no reason to be misled or mistaken about a single individual asset, which is a point that Judge Ebell made in the Jolson case. So in this case, there's no, no reason to think that Congress would want it to balance the scales any differently. And instead, there's every reason to think that Congress would have intended the baseline rule that is always applied in this context to apply to the situation, which is that a debt procured by fraud is not dischargeable. Here, the district court and the bankruptcy court both found that not only did the debtor lie about his tax refund, and I think that the respondent here has tried to rehabilitate the debtor a little bit, but just to be clear, there were findings made that he lied about the amount of the tax fund and whether or not they had actually received the tax fund uh, both times. The, the bankruptcy court found that the deceit was obvious. That's at page 60A of the petition appendix. So why would have Congress have intended to, for a debtor engaged in obvious deceitful conduct uh, against a creditor who's entirely blameless, um, to allow the debtor to discharge that debt. And you think about the consequences of the kind of behavior that that would promote. There's no reason to think that Congress would want to promote that kind of behavior. Certainly not when one I looks at the result be to get people, especially law firms, would, to do, do things in writing. Well, and, that, and that's an argument that that's, that's a, a reason that the, the 11th Circuit gave and that is advanced by the respondent here, not so much so by the government. And I think that that's sort of an example of the worst kind of uh, legislative purpose, in the sense that there's, there's certainly no general statement of purpose that Congress intended things to be in writing generally. If Congress really had that objective, Justice Ginsburg, it wouldn't have limited the writing requirements to statements about financial condition. It would have applied it generally. Uh, under their rule, they say that statements about professional qualifications or the values of assets uh, are, are different. But if Congress is really concerned about uh, having uh, writing, things in writing for evidentiary purposes, it would apply that across the board. So I don't think there's any uh, really traction to the notion that the, the statute should be interpreted in light of this unstated objective to simply uh, 
generate more reliable evidence in proceedings. Nor is there any indication that courts have had difficulty making uh, credibility determinations about lies in this context. Uh, those were carefully litigated here. Both courts below uh, heard testimony, and they concluded that uh, the respondent in this case lied about the status of his tax refund and the amount of his tax refund. Given that, this case falls within the baseline rule that that debt is not dischargeable. The only way that respondents and the government can pull that out of there is to give respecting the broadest conceivable breadth in terms of relating to. And then, once you get to that point, to ask this Court essentially to impose judicial limits on the breadth of that term, because even they, I think, appreciate that if respecting really means related to here, then this is really going to swallow up the whole thing. I mean, they, they say that the statement has to be about an asset, the respondent does. But why isn't a statement that uh, I run a hedge fund a statement relating to one's financial condition? Certainly someone might would, would reasonably view it that way. Why isn't a statement that I graduated first in my class from Harvard Business School a statement respecting financial condition? Certainly it would be related to that. And they're just asking this Court to draw arbitrary limits in order to cabin the reach of their rule. The government takes a slightly different approach and asks this court to ask this court to adopt an ability to pay overview, but that's not in the statute either. And as I've explained, ability to pay something by committing an asset to pay a debt is different than one's overall financial status. You can be deeply in debt but still have an asset that you commit to paying a debt. If I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Hughes? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioner's principal textual argument is to say, instead of looking to relating to, they prefer the word about. Now, we reject the premise that there's any substantial legal difference between uh, those two concepts. But even supposing there is a difference, the only example that p- petitioner can offer that shows any difference is what we would call a trivial example, something that's a, a, a trivial impact on, on the object. But in the context of this statute, Section 523A2, those sorts of trivial examples structurally cannot exist. And that's because in addition to demonstrate, uh, when, when a plaintiff comes forward with this sort of claim, in addition to identifying the, the statement that the plaintiff alleges is uh, uh, fraudulent, the, the plaintiff must also identify why that statement was material to its decision-making, why the plaintiff actually relied on that statement, and why the plaintiff at minimum was justified in doing so. And so those requirements, those necessary requirements of a Section 523A2 claim necessarily and substantially limit the universe of claims that could be within the realm of statements respecting financial condition. And Congress was well aware that it was crafting a statute about fraud. It well knew of all of these other limitations that that cabin the universe of, of the potential kinds of claims. And so that precludes any court from having to consider these sorts of trivial examples. Well, let's, let's take Mr. Garr's example of the Harvard Business School graduate. I graduated from Harvard Business School. Um, and someone might reasonably rely on that um, and take it to be material and significant, but does it relate to financial condition, overall financial condition? Doesn't that term have to mean something? 
So a few things about that, Your Honor. First, to directly answer your question, we think that the clearest test is to ask, does the statement describe what would be a line item on one's balance sheet or income statement? And we think that's a very easy way to understand okay. what the director All right. So, so you'd rule it out on the basis that it has to be at least something that would appear on a financial statement. All right. A lot of trivial things appear on financial statements, right? I have this, that little asset. I own a car. It's a second-hand car. It's not worth a whole lot, but it'd be on a financial statement. Um, that would be enough in, in your, under your rule? Well, yes, Your Honor. And what what deal with that example is the materiality requirement. But, again, their rule is if you make that Well, no, no. It was reasonably relied on for the purpose of the loan or the services rendered or whatever as collateral. Surely, of course it was. But it doesn't have anything to do with overall financial condition. It just means I own a very bad car. Well, the question would be the reliance area there, Your Honor. And if they're relying on it, that statement, because it says something about your financial condition, I think that would be very clear evidence that it goes to financial condition. But, again, their test sets up a rule where if it appears on your balance sheet, they agree to be cl- uh, uh, applies in that circumstance. The only question here is if you make that identical statement, not in the context of a balance sheet, but standing alone, does all of a sudden 2A apply? And we think that rule doesn't make any sense, because it's the identical misstatement if you include a, a misstatement about uh, a, a worthless car on your balance sheet, and you make that identical statement standing alone because the, the, the loan officer comes asks you the next day, by the way, do you have any additional automobiles we should, we, we should know about? The rule they set up is if you put it on the balance sheet, 2B applies, but if you say it standing alone, all of a sudden 2A applies. That's all form and no substance. The rule, the, different, the distinction between 2A and 2B should not turn on what the packaging of the misstatement is. If it occurs on a balance sheet or if it occurs independently standing alone. It should look to what the, what the actual substance of the statement is. And when the substance of the statement is one that goes to financial status, then it's a 2B claim because it's a statement that's respecting financial condition. And again, it's clear that that is this case. One need look no further than their amended complaint in the bankruptcy court. This is at the 11th Circuit's appendix, page A38. And they say, what, why was the, the tax information material? And they say, quote, it was material information regarding his and his company's financial status and abilities. Their theory of materiality and reliance was that this statement was material and they relied upon it because it went to his financial status, his ability to pay. That's the identical reliance theory that the bankruptcy uh, court adopted at Petition Appendix 62A. And so what our position is, is that a, a, a creditor should not be able to, on the one hand, identify for purposes of, of, of establishing reliance and materiality that the reason, the actual reason they relied on this was because it was a statement about financial condition, while at the same time, in, tra- in, in trying to avoid the requirements of 2B, say, no, no, this was something that is not respecting financial condition because it didn't have the proper form of being on a full balance sheet. The reality, when, when creditor relies for this actual reason, that is what should govern the 2A, 2B analysis, or else, again, you lead to these bizarre results, as I said. It shouldn't matter the, the truthful packaging. Uh, again, as, as — uh, your, your, your understanding uh, shrinks what would once fit under 2A. So what remains under 2A where you don't have a writing requirement? 
so, so, a substantial amount remains under 2A, as 34 years of Fourth Circuit practice have shown. And that's because most of the claims, most plaintiffs under Section 523A2 are not lenders. Most plaintiffs have a variety of fraud claims that are entirely outside the loan context. And, and so just to look at this Court's recent 523A2 cases, two years ago the Court considered Husky uh, International Electronics about fraudulent conveyance, which was a 2A case. Prior to that, the Court looked at Cohen v. De La Cruz, which was a case about a, a fraudulent scheme to overcharge rents in violation of state law. That was a 2A case. Prior to that, in Grogan with securities fraud, that was a 2A case. All of these cases that deal with fraud entirely outside the lending capacity come up as 2A cases. And as we've said, uh, for 34 years, our approach has governed in the Fourth Circuit, and 2A is, is very much alive and well there. We documented dozens of examples of all sorts of frauds. For example, when somebody misrepresents the quality of service or the goods that they're selling, and, and a whole panoply of, of issues that have been addressed as 2A cases in the Fourth Circuit, which has applied Angler for, for the past In, in saying years. that, are you saying that 2A does not really uh, exist anymore with respect to fraud on lenders? No, it, it still can exist for fraud with lenders, particularly when somebody is making a statement at the time of obtaining debt as to a future promise. And there, the fraudulent claim would not be what uh, about their financial condition, but something that they are going to do in the future, perhaps how they use the proceeds of a loan or if they're going to convey ownership interests to the person who's giving them the loan. So there still is a role for 2A uh, in the context of lending. But the context of this statute, Congress was quite clear in, in creating 2B where it intended to have to be apply in the main in the lending capacity. That was because Congress recognized that there was a pattern and practice of abuses in the particular consumer lending space, and that's why Congress felt the need to impose heightened uh, consumer protections in the, in the 2B context. And we think it would be a bizarre result if those protections could be circumvented uh, by a rule such that if the lender asks for everything but overall financial condition, if they just ask for the three most important assets and the three <laughs> most important debts, all of a sudden those protections would cease to apply, even though the, the, the creditor is getting the identical information that they want uh, from getting a holistic balance sheet. So the, the context of the statute, we think, very clearly indicates why Congress would uh, uh, prefer for an approach that applies to uh, statements about single assets every bit as much as, as a statement about an overall balance sheet. In addition to, to uh, that particular purpose, the very example that Congress gave in enacting the statute was a list of debts, only something on the debtor's balance sheet. And uh, Congress had cited to a, a bankruptcy court decision in Ray Hill where bankruptcy or Judge Bayer very clearly explained that the kind of example that Congress had in mind was not the kind of, uh, of document from which overall net worth could be obtained. So the very example that Congress uh, enacted or identified for purposes of 2B would not be captured by petitioner's rule, which I think would be a, a, a surprising result. It, beyond that, we know that Congress had in mind that 2B would have real effect, and that's because the 1970 Bankruptcy Commission, when it issued its report in 1973, it recommended doing away with this exemption to bankruptcy in its entirety. It found that, on the whole, it was doing more harm than good uh, to the public. Now, Congress said, we're not going to go that far. We're going to strike a compromise, and lenders will be able to uh, exempt debts from discharge in these circumstances. And they, they all read the Bankruptcy Commission report? Well, it was, it was entered in, into, into the record, Your Honor. It was and entered into the record. 
Oh, then I'm sure they all read it. Your Honor, though, to, to be clear, our, our principal argument rests on the text of the statute, and we think that that resolves this case. We, we don't submit that going to these other sources are, are, are necessary. We think the text is clear. But to the extent that there's any possible ambiguity, we, we don't believe there is any. But we think all of these other points line up behind it, because along the same line, prior to the 1978 recodification, five circuits had looked at materially identical language, and they all reached the same result. Again, we think the text is the most compelling uh, uh, basis for the Court to decide this case. But the fact that the text, the legislative history, the, the, the statutory lineage, and the clear purpose all line up the same direction, we think indicates why the Eleventh Circuit uh, was, was, was absolutely correct uh, in its, its decision with this case. May I go back to the argument Mr. Gare did? He said the Congress was um, seeking to, to protect debtors where uh, credit companies were telling them to omit a particular item. How does this rule protect those creditors? Because if the debtor provides the balance sheet in writing but omits something that the creditor asked, told them it's not, it's unimportant, why does the writing requirement save the debtor? It doesn't really. Well, Your Honor, that's — It doesn't save the debtor because — Your Honor, in 2B, there were two particular protections. One was the writing requirement, and, and you're correct, the writing requirement would not apply. But the other distinction between 2A, which does the work in that case, is the reasonable reliance requirement. Congress enhanced the standards from justifiable reliance, which typically does not require any um, affirmative duty to investigate, to reasonable reliance, which would include a duty to investigate, particularly for that example, because they said creditors, because they get consumer reports and other kinds of information from credit rating agencies, they can either know or inf- pretty easily find out if that, if that statement is incomplete. And so the reasonable reliance requirement is what, what takes care of those cases. Would you respond to, to Mr. Gar's argument that the statement here concerns ability to pay and not uh, financial condition? Well, it's hard for me to see the distinction between those two, Your Honor, because I think people are concerned about ability to pay statements because they go to financial condition, vice versa. Financial condition statements are are relevant to to ability to pay. Uh, But, again, as the government says, ability to pay is a very important part of this test. We have two separate amicus briefs who identify a separate way to look at financial condition, which is not just balance sheet solvency, but is uh, equitable solvency, which goes to ability to pay. So I think another way to look at this case is a statement that shows ability to pay liquidity is a statement that goes to financial condition. I think it's very hard to disaggregate those two. And this is obviously a statement about ability to pay. And so I think that does confirm that it is a statement respecting financial condition. Now, I I think the one distinction that they try to make at page 14 of the yellow brief is that there was a model code uh, that uh, back in 1926 that looked to statements respecting financial condition and then means of ability to pay, and they tried to suggest that since only statement respecting financial condition was plucked from that model code, that means of ability to pay is something different. That means of ability to pay the language in the context of that model code was doing something very different. It was applying to what we today think of payment from insiders. So, for example, if you show up at the jewelry store and you say, well, I don't have the ability to pay, I'm not going to make a representation about my financial condition, but my very wealthy grandmother is going to come to tomorrow and pay for this diamond. That is a representation about your means of your ability to pay, which is distinct from your financial condition. So the distinction that they try to make in the yellow brief at page 14 uh, is, is about those third-party ability of means to pay. When you take those third parties out, I don't think there's much distinction between financial condition and the ability to pay. 
What about the argument that you would be putting a burden on small businesses that uh, deal informally? You would be uh, putting a record-keeping requirement on them for a statement like, I've got this tax refund. So, so, Your Honor, this rule has applied for 34 years in the Fourth Circuit, and neither Petitioner nor Zemecki have come up with a shred of evidence that there has been any untoward policy effect on small business or any other sector of the economy. And I think we know exactly why, because the NFIB amicus brief cites its own report, and its report at page 8 concludes that bankruptcies are not significant problems for small business. It goes through all the other problems that small businesses have in obtaining payment, and it says bankruptcies are relatively insignificant. And then that same report at page 6 explains why, uh, uh, beyond that, that small businesses stand to benefit more from expansive rules that protect debtors for the very reason that small business owners are more likely to be debtors in bankruptcy cases than the general population. So the NFIB's own evidence suggests that that bankruptcies like this do not pose any practical problem on small businesses. Uh, Beyond that, that that these sorts of rules help small business owners who are more likely to declare bankruptcy. And there's just simply no empirical evidence, even though we know our rule is governed for 34 years in the Carolinas, Virginias, and Maryland. And there's been no indication of any sort of overreach of, of, of record-keeping. Well, you know, we, we get these arguments a lot. This rule has been there for 30 years and there are no problems. I mean, there are a lot of factors go into whether or not you're in, there's no empirical evidence. It's not like there's a daily report about what charges have been made and then the cases have been settled or anything like that. The fact that there haven't been that many reported decisions, which I assume is the basis for your statement it hasn't been a problem, it doesn't really tell you all that much in cases like this. Well, I think, Your Honor, the, the point that we make is a, is a more limited one, which is to say if the sky were falling in the Fourth Circuit, there would be some evidence or some outcry from these very substantial jurisdictions. There would be some indication that there was a problem that, that came from this rule. So we're using this, uh, the, the, the absence of evidence in the Fourth Circuit to simply say that any view of a policy concern is substantially overblown because there hasn't been any identification of even a single case where there have been imposition of record-keeping uh, obligations that have been deemed <laughs> improper or any sort of improper cost on small businesses. And again, I think when we look to the NFIB evidence, that shows exactly why. This is just not a problem that in the aggregate was of concern uh, uh, to small businesses. And rather, Congress was looking at this as consumer protection, how it dealt with consumer lending in the aggregate. And that's why it it, it drafted the, the broad statute that it did to preclude any kinds of circumvention. Because, again, a rule to the contrary would, would lead to a result where if, uh, you know, Appling had not just said, I'm getting a $100,000 refund, but I'm getting a 100000 refund, and therefore my head is above water, that all of a sudden two, uh, a 2B would apply. That's just all form over substance, and there's no reason to think that, that, that Congress would have actually done that. So we think our rule uh, accords with what actual creditor uh, behavior is, and, and that should be the rule of decision that Congress was concerned ab- about substances. Additionally, as I've said, our rule captures the, the only single example that Congress gave. And, and, and finally, I think our rule is just plainly uh, required by the, the, the clear text of the statute that the word respecting has a broadening function. There's been no indication that it has anything but a broadening function. And regardless of one thinks it's relating to respecting about, all of that broadening function leads to the very same rule that, that the 11th Circuit adopted below, where statements about Assets and, and liabilities necessary. Could, could you tell me how you think, why you think your rule is better than the Solicitor General's suggestion? 
Well, our rule is superior for several reasons. It accomplishes Congress's goal of extending debtor protection to this range of claims because but for our rule — So how is your rule different from the solicitor? Oh, oh sorry, sorry. Um, apart from the solicitor general's rule, I don't think our, our approach has any uh, uh, pragmatic difference. I've, I've thought through all of the examples, and I can't think of an example where our rule departs from where the solicitor general's rule would come out. We, we think our rule is a bit is, is straightforward and an easy one to apply. Uh, uh, but I think I think in all of these cases, if you think of ability to pay as either a requirement right, of the so rule. So articulate your rule and articulate them for me so that I have a clear idea of the differences. Sure, I know so they spoke about context and purpose, and you didn't. So Yes, Your Honor. Our rule is that any statement that has a, a direct impact on one's overall financial condition, which Petitioner defines as the balance of assets and liabilities, is a statement respecting financial condition. So we think an easy way to think of this is if it's a statement describing a single line item on a balance sheet or an income statement, that's what qualifies. Uh, the government's rule is they, they say it's, quote, an affirmative representation about a single asset if that representation is offered as evidence of the debtor's ability to pay. So they add that if evidence of the debtor's ability to pay. We think that's just descriptive of what's going to happen in these cases rather than something that has to be added as a test. They, they offer this example of, of items in commerce. We think our rule would come out the same way with items in commerce just when one thinks about the timing of the transaction, because when that transaction closes, the representation one's relying upon that the good is genuine isn't about something on one's balance sheet. It's about an item that's actually being transmitted in commerce and is coming off one's balance sheet. So at that time of reliance, uh, it's, it's not a balance sheet style statement. So I, I don't think there's any practical difference between where we are and where the Solicitor General is. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Sandberg. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Our view and respondents' view of the statute leaves the no-discharge rule in fraud cases basically intact. We're just interpreting the scope of the statute's uh, provision that says that statements need to be in writing. And as the colloquy with uh, Respondents' Council makes clear, although some statements might indeed be insignificant, um, the dollar bill in my pocket or, by analogy, a single at-bat of Ted Williams, Uh, The statute is only concerned with representations that have actual effect on creditor behavior. Uh, And the determination whether a statement is one respecting financial condition or not will make a practical difference only when the creditor has actually relied on it and the reliance was, at a minimum, uh, at least justifiable. And a creditor who has relied on a statement about the value of a single asset, such as here a tax refund, has done so for exactly the same purpose uh, that one would customarily rely on a comprehensive financial statement for, which is to form a judgment about the debtor's creditworthiness for purposes of consummating or not consummating a particular transaction. So uh, statement respecting financial condition is ultimately about the topic of the statement. It's not about the significance of the statement. So if I make a statement about the status of a, the project being financed, say – I lie to the lender and say that we've broke ground, we're moving on to phase two, when in fact there's not even a shovel that's hit the dirt yet. That's not a statement respecting financial condition. That's a statement respecting something else. Um, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that this phrase uh, wasn't plucked out of the ether in 1978. It had existed in prior bankruptcy law uh, dating back to 1926, and it had been interpreted uh, by courts over the years to extend beyond statements about overall financial condition to include statements about particular assets under circumstances where a creditor had relied on that statement and and been defrauded. Um, It's also worth bearing in mind that the the focus of the legislative process in the 1970s was the Commission's report 
uh, one of the two bills that was before Congress in the 70s was drafted by the Commission. The Commission included um, four legislators of the nine members, and the hearings were all about what had happened before the Commission, what the Commission was proposing. And it's striking that the Commission had proposed to eliminate the fraud exception to discharge entirely for consumer debts, um, not just for false financial statements, for all, for all consumer debts. And Congress thought that that went too far. Uh, but it ultimately preserved a rule that this, uh, for the particular class of statements that deal with financial uh, condition, the representation would need to be in writing if the creditor uh, sought to render that claim dis- uh, non-dischargeable in the bankruptcy. You say that a statement respecting the debtor's financial condition encompasses an affirmative representation about a single asset if that representation is offered as evidence of the debtor's ability to pay, right? So it is the intent of the person making the statement, the subjective intent of the person making the statement? No, we see it as an objective uh, test that turns on the context in which the statement is made. So if a creditor hearing that statement in the context in which the statement was made. And remember, we're talking here about oral statements because it only makes a difference right. for oral statements, really. So if the, if the creditor says, tell me about your financial condition, and the debtor says, here are the three significant assets I own that you should know about, one of them is a genuine Vermeer. Um, so if the debtor makes the statement not intending it to be evidence of, to be taken as evidence of the debtor's ability to pay, but it is taken in that way by the creditor, that counts, or a reasonable creditor would take it that way? I think a reasonable creditor gets closest to the, the right approach. It's an objective test. In, in other areas of the, uh, the law, this Court has looked to, in discerning the purpose of a statement, has applied an objective test, such as, for example, whether an out-of-court statement is testimonial or not. Um, and, and we think that it's important for it to be objective just so that a creditor doesn't come into court when it files its uh, uh, complaint in the adversary proceeding and say, I didn't subjectively rely on it for ability to pay. I relied on something else. But Mr. Sorry, please. Uh, Mr. Hughes said that there was really no practical difference between your test with the evidence of ability to pay language in it and his test without it. Do you disagree with that or agree with that? Uh, as I understand respondents' position, there, there is no practical difference in how it turns out. We, we're really — the point of our ability to pay language is, is to get at what we think Congress was trying to do here, and, and one can agree or disagree as a general matter with its policy choice, but what we think Congress was trying to do was treat statements — uh, that go to a debtor's ability to pay differently than, than other types. So statement respecting financial condition is, is one made for the purpose of shedding light on one's financial condition. And, and why ever would a creditor care about that? Because they want to know if they're going to get their money back. What if, it's a false, what, what if it's a false statement about an asset, but it isn't one that would be taken by uh, a, a reasonable creditor as having any significant bearing on financial condition? Uh, well, I, I think that that statement probably would not be material or it would not be one that the creditor would have reasonably relied upon. By hypothesis, we're talking about circumstances in which a creditor has come into court and said, I was defrauded. This statement that was made was so significant that I made a different lending decision than I would have. But then they, they uh, turn, when it comes to the analysis of statement respecting financial condition, they say, oh, no, this statement wasn't significant enough to go to the debtor's overall financial condition. It's, it just merely affected my decision about whether to consummate the deal. And I think that what Congress was focused on in the 1970s, for better or worse, was to affect real-world creditor behavior. So why do we have to look at the debtor's intent? Why don't we just want the elements of reasonable reliance capture almost how how can a creditor reasonably rely on a statement 
that wasn't, that couldn't have been intended as? I think that's right. I don't think we are looking to the debtor's in- intent under our approach. I think we're looking at what uh, an objective observer uh, coming at things from the cre- creditor side of the transaction would understand the statement to have been made for. Was it to shed light on the debtor's ability to, to, to pay or not? We've been focusing on um, the balance sheet, and, and that's where your focus has been. Is it an asset? Would it appear on a financial statement? Um, but what about an income statement uh, or a representation about a future stream of income that wouldn't appear on a balance statement but might appear in an in- income statement? Um, I understood there to be a little daylight between your, your position and your colleagues on that. I think our approach would cover those statements because we think that they are financial representation, representations that go to ability to pay. I'm not sure whether Respondents' Council would say that their approach doesn't sweep that in. I, I think they also have referred to income or debt statements in addition to uh, balance sheets. Um, and uh, in that sense, we're, the government's approach isn't tethered to any the formality of the particular document or what would appear on any particular document. It's really about the purpose to which. Well, but you talked about assets or liabilities. Um, that, that, that doesn't necessarily represent income future income streams. That, that's right. Um, the articulation of the government's test that my uh, colleague read sort of baked into it the premise of this case, which was a statement about a single asset. And so I don't know that this Court would need to think about the entire universe of representations um, in, in order to resolve it, but uh, certainly a statement that is not just about an asset or a liability, but is about uh, an income or an expenditure would also fall within our approach. Um, so uh, and as to why the Congress may have uh, required statements to be in writing, it's true that it could have said much more in the legislative history uh, than, than it did. But uh, we know one thing for a fact from the face of the statute, and everyone agrees about it, Congress did require statements to be in, in writing if they're respecting financial condition in order for the creditor to prevail. Congress could have written in 2A uh, a statement in writing respecting financial condition, but it didn't. It said statement respecting financial condition. And then in 2B, it imposed a writing requirement. And we think the, the only way to, to give uh, – we don't see how, under petitioner's approach, it would be sensible to distinguish between statements that, that go to the whole and statements that go to some or most or, or one. Um, I'd be happy to entertain any further questions that the Court may have. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, five minutes, Mr. Garr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The rule advanced by respondent and the government would essentially wipe out the application of 523's baseline rule in the consumer finance or simple collateral situation. The government says itself on page 18 of its brief that statements respecting the debtor's finances are, of course, common in credit transactions. And under the rule that you've just heard today, any false statements about finances are going to result in a debt that's not dischargeable if they're made orally, which, as the National Federation of Independent Businesses has told this Court, statements about finances are still made orally in common transactions throughout the United States by small businesses and regular folks. And there's just absolutely no indication that Congress intended to put creditors who are blameless in a situation where the debts created by deceitful debtors um, are going to be entirely discharged under this rule. The Fourth Circuit case law only proves that the Fourth Circuit has invented artificial limits on respondents related to principle. What, what that case law doesn't show is all the debts about false statements about individual assets that are being discharged in the Fourth Circuit and putting creditors in hardship situation that Congress did not intend to be discharged. So I don't think the Fourth Circuit case law really gets them anywhere. 
the, the problem in this case is completely different than the problem that Congress had in mind. We're talking about debtors and creditors make a false statement about a single asset in the classic kind of collateral situation where a, there's no reason to think that the creditor is blameworthy in any way and where the, the debtor is entirely deceitful. In that situation, there's no evidence neither in the text or the history that Congress intended to weigh the balance in favor of debtors there and excuse debtors by discharging debts procured by fraud. The ability to pay concept is just different than financial condition. Collateral on a $1,000 loan, you may be able to use that collateral to pay the loan, but that has no bearing on your overall financial situation. Lots of people who are in dire financial situations uh, make statements about collateral in order to make loans. And a lender might look at the statement about a p- piece of property as evidence of an ability to pay, but that is not evidence of one's overall financial condition. And one thing, ironically, that I didn't hear from either respondent or the government today is any real argument based on the text of the statute, either respecting which they've relied upon up to this point or financial condition, nor did I hear them dispute that financial condition does refer to one's overall financial status. And I didn't hear any explanation as to how their related to an interpretation of respecting doesn't negate that term as a term of art and term of limitation. The last thing I would say is if this Court does adopt a new test in this area and there have been, you know, competing versions of possibilities for this Court, we would urge this Court to vacate the decision below and to remand um, for one thing, there's, there's a dispute among the parties about exactly um, why respondent made a false statement about the tax refund, whether Lamar was relying on its overall financial status. The courts below heard that and rejected re- the respondent's position that he advanced today, and I urge you to look at pages 60 to 61 of the petition appendix and 39 and 40 of the petition appendix, where the courts below held that we relied on the statement about his tax refund and not his overall financial condition. And because we relied on a statement about a single asset and not a statement about his overall financial condition, and because that statement was indisputably false, the debt at issue in this case should not be discharged under the command of Congress. There are no further questions. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.